Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. It is a lovely Friday here in New York City. Hope you are having a great day wherever you are across the country. And for some of you uh, iHeart app listeners, perhaps around the world. Uh, So thank you so much for hanging out. 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. If you would like to call in and talk about, well, whatever's on your mind, we can definitely do that. Today's a day mostly devoted in the news cycle to leaks, and we'll get there in just a second. But first, um, I have some additional thoughts. I'll give you a sense of what's coming up on the show. Uh, I have some additional uh, thoughts on affirmative action and where that battle for the administration and I think for the country is uh, is heading because remember it's not just about college admissions it also will i think very quickly turn into an issue about diversity recruiting for jobs and for government uh, employment and it'll go on from there so uh, that's a big fight that is uh, looming a big a big battle ahead it's just getting started now we'll also be joined by dinesh d'souza a man i'm sure almost all if not all of you are quite familiar with his new book the big lie is out we'll have him on to talk to him about it our friend Madison Jeziato from the Washington Times will be joining to talk to us a bit about this week for the White House, this week for Trump and what they have been up to. And uh, we will also talk about some uh, social justice warrior in action with Lena Dunham trying to, well, what could have at least gotten a couple of airline stewardesses fired because they were being, quote, transphobic in a private conversation that she that Dunham thought she overheard. Talked about that. So we got a lot of different ground to cover today on the show. It's a Friday and it's August, so we can sort of kick back, relax, and talk about whatever we want. The big story today, of course, is leaks. This was a week with a lot of them, I should note. And the transcript leaks in some ways, well, there are a lot of them that have been egregious, but the transcript leaks, those, I can't imagine those come from a particularly broad circle. I don't know who has access to uh, to the transcripts of a conversation between heads of state, but no matter what you think of Trump, it really does hurt the administration in a way that hurts the country, right? There are things that make Trump look bad, and obviously the media is trying to do as much of that as possible, but then there are things that actually just hurt all of us, right? There are things that are self-defeating, and releasing that transcript falls into that category, as well as just being... Uh, really unethical and uh, a violation of trust, a violation of trust for those who are working in this White House, for the president himself, whomever had access to this, uh, whomever had this transcript and decided to share it, or a couple of transcripts and share it with uh, the Washington Post, and I think the New York Times also ran it, uh, made a very unwise decision. And this is not the only time we've seen this. Uh, We've seen a lot of leaks that are intended to harm this president, but they do much more than that. And uh, as I've been saying to you, it's 
this is just damaging on on many levels. It for it pushes the government to be uh, much stricter about leaks. It pushes the government to do what I well what is called deterrence prosecution, which for me is always a bit of a sketchy proposition. Deterrence prosecution is when they know they can't get most of the people who are doing something, but they want to make it. It's making an example of somebody. So you get one person and you lock them up for a long time to show all the others that they shouldn't do this. Now, if you're going to do deterrence prosecution with a major case of somebody who's a real exemplar of the worst of the worst of something, sure. But if you're going to grab some some low-level person, someone who's just uh, caught up in the current politics of the moment, and you're going to give them a much more severe sentence than you would otherwise because you want to send a message— I think that's unjust. I, I can't. And now the administration hasn't done that yet. So I, I'm not criticizing the administration or Sessions or Trump. Or, I just I'm just putting out this warning. I think it is really troubling that that could happen and that there is greater pressure on it. The more these leaks are really damaging and the more these leaks are egregious, they're way beyond what anybody would think is acceptable to share because there are gray areas. And remember that. There are times when it's like, well, if so-and-so was talking to so-and-so about what was on the front page of the New York Times, are we still going to pretend that that's sensitive and classified information? I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a country I don't really want to live in, to be honest with you. If we're going to completely depart from common sense about what's a violation and what's classified and what's not. And it's, it's troubling when you hear some government uh, lawyers and some prosecutors describe what they think qualifies as a leak. Uh, all of that said, meaning that it's stuff that's well known, it's out there, and and no one could be no no person in the chain of transmission if they weren't the first person should be held responsible for it, right? I mean, the mo- the moment WikiLeaks has put stuff out there that you know has all the markings on it, are we still going to pretend that well, if you pass that to somebody, you're passing along classified, right? Well, it's on the internet and everybody knows about it. Is it anyway? These are I'm getting a little down the rabbit hole here, but this is a complicated issue with. That said, it's not complicated when you are sharing transcripts of a president's conversation with heads of state. It's not complicated when you are deciding to take what are allegedly transcripts of a private citizen's phone conversations with uh, foreigners and sharing that with the press as, you know, this is these are all really, really bad violations of law. And that's why Jeff Sessions was holding the press conference today that he did. That's why he's announcing they are uh, tripling, I believe, the number of open leak probes, open leak investigations. And he said the following. Simply put, these leaks hurt our country. All of us in government can do better. The first requirement is for discipline within all our agencies of the government. To prevent these leaks, every agency and Congress has to do better. We are taking a stand. This culture of leaking must stop. Let me also say that for those who still work in military and have a clearance or who work in the intel agencies, anybody who has access to classified information, the uh, the jerk like, you know, the the um, irresponsible, the jerk actions of a few here um, will mean that there will be all kinds of additional scrutiny put on people. And it, it, it just makes the whole government slower and more paranoid. 
because they are going to have to show or they, they may be asked by the White House, what are you doing to stop this? What are you doing to crack down on this? And for, a, I mean, you know, I, I don't know what the actual number of real leakers are. As I've been saying to you, I think it's small. I think you're talking about a, a group of people who are deep state, who are anti-Trump deep staters, who think that they can overthrow this presidency with information, and they're trying to cherry-pick whatever they can to put out there in the press to take Trump down. But I don't think it's a lot, but there are so many people that work in the government have access to classified information. They're going to have all these new regulations, and it's just a pain. And, you know, someone somewhere along the line is going to get jammed up really badly for something that's minor, and that's a shame. You know, and and I I hope that this—I look, I hope that Sessions— who seems to me to be stern but fair so far in his application of the law. I mean, I disagree with him on civil asset forfeiture, as I've said to you from the very beginning. And I view that as a—I don't really view that as an issue that has two sides. It's kind of like you believe in due process or you don't. It's not It's not we you believe in due process unless it means that we can take money from people that we say are drug dealers and then there's no due process. No. You either believe—you know, there's either due process or there's not. It's, it, it is binary. And I think that civil asset forfeiture falls outside the scope of what, what could be considered reasonably to be due process. So, uh, with Sessions, he's announcing uh, these—anyway, well, I think he's stern but fair. I think that he would take the totality of circumstances into account because this is about to set—or this is setting up a major First Amendment battle. Um, Jeff Sessions has said that there could be subpoenas of the media— one of the things we are doing is reviewing policies affecting media subpoenas. We respect the important role that the press plays and will give them respect, but it is not unlimited. They cannot place lives at risk with impunity. We must balance the press's role with protecting our national security and the lives of those who serve in the intelligence community, the armed forces, and all law-abiding Americans. We will not allow rogue anonymous sources with security clearances to sell out our country. These cases to investigate and prosecute are never easy, but cases will be made and leakers will be held accountable. Now, let me say uh, the moment that they start pulling uh, journalist information, whether it's uh, you know, there are text messages, phone calls, emails, whatever it may be. The media is going to, they're going to scream bloody murder. I mean, they are going to, it, it'll be like, you know, the, the day that, I don't know, the day that the Access Hollywood tapes was, were released or something. I mean, they're just going to say that, you know, this is just too far. They're going to, and some of us, like me, will be standing around saying, well, you know, I actually don't, I, I don't like that. The, that they're going to subpoena uh, the records of people in the media, because the understanding is usually that that's not that that's not done. Uh, I also don't think that the media has has impunity, legal impunity, to write whatever they want about it. You know, well, explain this to me, somebody. Let's just take this to it. I know that people disagree with me on this, and that's fine, right? Everyone thinks that you know that the media can just write whatever they want about whatever national security secrets they want, and that's fine. Even though says who? It's not in the law. Says who? Says who? Hey, the mooch. No, that's not the mooch. Actually, that was the other guy from the campaign. Uh, but everyone says that, or everyone thinks that the media can just do this. It's not legally speaking. That's not true. It's just DOJ policy. So we're kind of living at the whim of the DOJ here. 
Uh, but if you're in the media and you got uh, inside information about a company that you were covering, and then you went out and you bought a lot of stock, you'd still be prosecuted for insider trading. You couldn't say, whoa, 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 First Amendment, blah, blah, blah. But if you're in the media and you find out about like a highly sensitive government program meant to stop terrorists from blowing up trains or airplanes or subways or whatever it may be, and you just decide that you're going to put that out there, you do that with impunity? Really? I also think it's interesting that in the tra- in the transmission or the the chain of transmission is what they always focus on. So the person that passes along the information is the person who can be prosecuted. You know, the originator of the classified information to the media is the person who can be prosecuted. But yet the media's whole justification for this is well, the people need to know the truth. So if this is information that would actually need to be known, wouldn't the person passing along the information be doing a public service in some cases? No one ever really wants to address that question, right? Just, no, no, imprison the leaker, Pulitzer for the journalist. Well, if the information should be publicly known, isn't the person who leaked it a whistleblower? Isn't the person, you know, look, it's a complicated issue, but let's talk about it the way that it is, not the way that people want to believe that it is. Um, So media media subpoenas are going to, this is going to raise the temperature a lot. Uh, between this administration and the media, as if that's even possible at this point. Beyond that, let me just say that they will be really upset about this, and this will turn into a discussion about why we don't care, why we don't trust, uh, why we don't trust the left-wing media, because this was done under the Obama administration, and it was in the news for like a day, because President Obama prosecuted. More people under the Espionage Act, this is a fact, you can check it if you like, but I promise you it's true. President Obama prosecuted more people under his administration, and remember, especially when you're talking about leaks, national security stuff, and when there's journalists involved, that's a senior-level decision in DOJ. That's not something that just kind of, you know, this is not some guy who's like a drug pusher on the corner who's getting caught up in the federal system. No, no, this is high-level decision-making, and... Obama prosecuted more people, his DOJ, more people under the Espionage Act than every president before him combined. And we're going after journalist records specifically, and we're listing them as unindicted conspirators. And the media was like, yeah, you know, free press. Obama's great. He's brilliant. He's a genius. We love him. Oh, this was all set in motion. And I think, by the way, I think Sessions is going to go after reporters. Uh, not not to prosecute them, but he's going to go after their records. I do think that's going to happen. Just remember I told you this. This was all put in motion by the Obama administration, and that's why the press pushing back on this is not going to be very effective. But my experience is that when people feel like they need to leak something like that, it's because they have concerns about what's going on. And I think that's one of the challenges. When we have a president who tries to make national security policy or foreign policy through tweeting, then we have a problem. And my guess is that's why people are leaking this kind of information, because they want the public to know how serious the situation is. So you got a Democratic Senator, Gene Shaheen of New Hampshire, making it sound like leaking the transcript of a president's call with two heads of state is, you know, NBD, no big deal. Wow. I have to say, this is one of those moments where there's a, a litmus test. If someone is even a little bit honest about what's going on with this administration or, or willing to be 
for once, a little bit honest, they they will say even some Democrats, even some real Trump haters I was seeing yesterday uh, putting out there that you know you can't do this. You can't leak transcripts of what Trump is saying to foreign heads of state. That's completely unacceptable uh, and illegal. But beyond that, also, it's just completely un- unacceptable. Um, and he, she wasn't the only one, by the way. You had, uh, of course, Maxine Waters of Congress saying that she thinks that there, there's these leaks are a great thing. Except- are you disturbed by it? No, not at all. <laughs> I am so glad they're telling us what's going on. And but it, we don't need to hear these conversations. They're confidential. This I threatens national security. I need to hear security. these conversations. I need to hear. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is his problem. He is in a White House where he's got people working for him that don't believe in him, don't like what he's doing, and they're trying to tell the American public they're whistle. Yeah, I mean, you've got, you know, a member of Congress there. Um, you got a member of Congress there who's uh, saying this is okay. You had uh, CNBC's John Harwood, who was the one who was so clearly partisan in the debate. It was, like, laughable uh, what a hack he was when he was moderating one of those debates. And, and he has called on people. Now, look, he's not a politician. He's a, he's a, uh, a pundit. But um, he tweeted out, Dear Leaker, you know who you are. Please just send me transcript of Putin call. Won't bug you for any more. That's the only one I need. Thanks, Jay, John Harwood. So I know he'd probably say that he's joking if really pushed on this, but I don't think he's joking. I think he's, I think he's just being a jerk. Uh, And I don't think that we should be encouraging this. It's irresponsible for people in the press uh, to be saying that this is a good thing to do. Um, And it's also a question of uh, of legality. I mean, Sessions said four people have already been prosecuted for leaks. That criminals who would illegally use their access to our most sensitive information to endanger our national security are, in fact, being investigated and will be prosecuted. Since January, the department has more than tripled the number of active leak investigations compared to the number pending at the end of the last administration. And we've already charged four people with unlawfully disclosing classified material or with concealing contacts with federal officers. So they're going to ramp this up and the fight with the media is going to get even worse, even more uh, even more belligerent, more acrimonious. Uh, this uh, this is going to go to some very interesting places. And I have to say that the real nuclear option for the administration would be to bring charges actually against somebody in the media for endangering national security. And I know people say, oh, Buck, the First Amendment. Uh, you know, the, the First Amendment is as applicable for journalists as it is for people who work for the government. There's no There is no special federal protection for disclosing classified information. It does not exist as a matter of law. If you think I'm wrong, try to find the law. It does not exist. So I don't think the Trump administration will do that. I think they'll just go after journalists and then prosecute the leakers. But they could prosecute a journalist. That would send quite a message. Dennis in Michigan on the iHeart app. Hey, Dennis. Hey, Buck. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I've never heard in radio anybody that thinks as much like me as you do. So I love listening. Thank you. Great minds think alike, sir. And so do ours. Indeed. Anyway, I've got a movie quote for you. Uh-oh. All right. Now with that intro, now I'm worried I'm going to mess this up. But go for it. <laughs> well, let me say this. This movie does 
uh, fit your definition of an action movie with everything except the shirtless muscles. Fair enough. Okay, so you should should have watched it. This is a minor a minor character discussing the main character. Summer of his third year, he went down in a chopper accident. Met bad pilot crew killed. That kid spent ten months in traction and another year learning to walk again. Did his fourth year from the hospital. Now it's up to you, Charlie, but you might consider cutting the kid a little slack. I believe you're talking about Jack Ryan in The Hunt for Red October when the guy says that he doesn't want Jack Ryan wearing a military uniform. I got a bonus question if you want. No, no, you only get one. I'm going to take my victory now. I'm going to take my winnings off the table on the action movie quotes. But if you got something else we'll talk about, that's that's fine. I do have something else. Um, I keep thinking that what is going on fits the definition of sedition. What do you think? I mean, I don't, has any, when was the last time somebody actually got charged with sedition? I mean, the, I mean, I think the, first of all, the alien and sedition acts is the, the only law regarding sedition that I know, which were, uh, clearly unconstitutional. Um, Okay. So, I mean, unless you, unless you're, meaning that those acts were right, because they were actually, they they were going, they were imprisoning or wanted to imprison people based on advocating for a policy one way or another, U.S. policies. I mean, if sedition is trying to convince people to what engage in an insurrection, right, overthrow of the government, yeah. right, that's. Uh, I mean, that has to be pretty specific. I mean, I think if people were saying, you know, take up arms and and you know, over, you know, and attack a federal facility or something, that, that's sedition. But I don't think you could. Uh, well, what okay. would you know? Who would you go after for sedition, Dennis? Play this out. I mean, who do you think you could actually charge with it? I'm thinking the people that are illegally doing the leaks. Oh well, no, but they're, they're not. The sedition isn't the charge that they would be. The charge that usually, you know, people always say treason, but treason actually has a very specific legal definition, which is aid to an enemy in a time of war. And so mm -hmm. giving information to a U.S. citizen, a member of the press, if you're a government official, that's not treason. We, we can call it treason, but I mean, that, at least legally speaking, that's not treason. It is a violation of the Espionage Act, which has very broad, very sweeping language about uh, the illegality of passing national security secrets to anybody who is not authorized to have it. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's that's what it falls. Uh, there are also statutes specifically on mishandling uh, classified information. They can get people on that. Uh, it depends on the specifics of the circumstance, but usually they charge people under the Espionage Act, which just governs any unauthorized disclosure of information relating to national security, the national defense. I actually think the Espionage Act is problematic because it, it's so uh, the, the terms are so broad or it's so sweeping in its language. And the government also has far too much authority to declare what is and is not classified. And they don't always apply a reasonableness standard to it. Right. They don't always apply a reasonable man standard. Well, you know, would anybody think that this is classified? If the answer is no, I don't think they should bring the charge. So. Yeah, that's uh, that's how they're going to do this, though. And, but I do I do think Sessions. I mean, mark my words, they are going to uh, treat journalists like they are a part of the investigation, and they're not going to give them any special protection in some of these cases. And journalists are going to be very angry about it. And and I agree with them that it's troubling, but it's just going to be hard to make make the American people much more upset about it now 
than they than they perhaps would have been because they were journalists were kind of complicit with Obama in this. You know, I mean, o- Obama yeah. went after people. I mean, they went after people hard for some some of the leaks. And look, there are the really bad leaks, right? There's the Bradley Manning stuff, the uh, Ed Snowden. I mean, there's some really bad leaks out there. But some of the leaks were kind of like, oh. really? You send someone to prison for that? Okay. I mean, it's pretty harsh. So it depends. And they attacked James Rosen for very little. Well, they, they didn't prosecute him, but they, as I understand it, as it was reported in the press, they listed him in a DOJ uh, filing as like, you know, a, a conspirator with uh, somebody that they that they did prosecute. Right. So that's and that that was a huge there should have been a huge red flag. I mean, the journalists should have been screaming about Obama and, and Holder's tyranny, but they weren't. Oh, I wonder why. Right. I mean, Dennis, this is why. You know, the, all the flailing and all the screaming and crying that journalists do right now doesn't have the effect that it would have otherwise because, and thank you, by the way, Shields High for calling and appreciate it. It doesn't have the same effect because they were so docile and complicit during the Obama administration. You know, just r- refused to speak truth to power, refused to hold Obama and his senior officials accountable. So now when they want to put on the, oh, we're First Amendment champions hat, it's like, sorry, we know who you are. We, we know what you really think. We know how quickly you are willing to dispense with your principles. So that's that's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. By the way, i got another story for you that um, I just saw before we came on air, and it's really interesting. It's uh, this the, the site it's up on right now is The Right Scoop, but the information comes from the ACLJ. Let me just read to you from this Right Scoop piece. This has to do with the Loretta Lynch— tarmac meeting with bill clinton which still is uh just unthinkable in terms of the the optics and the ethics and it just cannot believe that somebody would do that unless that they unless there was unless there was collusion which there clearly was there clearly was james comey says that loretta lynch told him told him to publicly mislead about the investigation and say it's not an investigation it's a matter which, by the way, is also not, it's not even a good lie. It's not even a smart lie. You think Loretta Lynch could do better than that. Uh, but here is, so the, on the tarmac meeting, here's what we have found out because of a FOIA, for, uh, a FOIA request. A new email dump from the FBI via FOIA requested by the ACLJ reveals what appears to be collusion between the media and the DOJ to squash the story about the 2016 meeting between Loretta Lynch and Bill Clinton on the tarmac in Phoenix, Arizona. Also, Comey reportedly said the FBI had no documents related to this meeting to fill a prior FOIA request. That apparently isn't true, given this new email dump. This is the—now I'm getting into the ACLJ's uh, write-up here, which is posted in this Right Scoop piece. The RightScoop.com is the site where it's up. Here's what the ACLJ wrote about this piece. First, the Comey FBI lied to us. Last July, we sent FOIA requests to both the Comey FBI and the Lynch DOJ asking for any documents related to the Clinton-Lynch plane meeting. The FBI, under the then-directorship of James Comey, quickly replied that no records responsive to your request were located. The documents we received today from the Department of Justice include several emails from the FBI to DOJ officials concerning the meeting. One with the subject line flag was correspondence between FBI officials uh, and DOJ officials. 
concerning flagging a story about a casual, unscheduled meeting between former President Bill Clinton and the Attorney General. The DOJ official instructs the FBI to let me know if you get any questions about this and provide our talkers, which are DOJ talking points, on this. The talking points, however, are redacted. Okay, before we go further, you are only allowed to redact if it is a sensitive national security matter. How the heck can internal talking points within the DOJ to explain the meeting between Attorney General Loretta Lynch and Bill Clinton on a tarmac in Arizona when Hillary Clinton is in the midst of a federal criminal investigation of her mishandling of classified at the height of a presidential election? How the heck can those be redacted? Well... I think we can all come up with some creative and very accurate answers. They don't want us to know what the initial story was going to be. Because it's not classified. The reasons for a meeting that, according to Lynch and Clinton, were just about talking about grandkids and you know yoga or whatever, the reasons for that meeting cannot be classified by definition. This is a lie. This is a cover-up. This is a cover-up. Let me continue. So that's I wanted to get that out there first and foremost. But let's continue with the ACLJ write up. Another email to the FBI contains the subject line security details coordinate between Loretta Lynch, Bill Clinton on July 1st, 2016, just days before our FOIA request, a DOJ email chain under the subject line FBI just called indicates that the FBI is looking for guidance in responding to media inquiries about news reports that the FBI had prevented the press from taking pictures of the Clinton-Lynch meeting. The discussion then went off email to several phone calls, of which we are not able to obtain records. An hour later, uh, somebody of the Office of the Attorney General stated, I will let Rybicki know. Jim Rybicki was the chief of staff and senior counselor to FBI Director Jim Comey. Uh, Also of note, Several of the documents contain redactions that are requested per FBI. It is clear that there were multiple records within the FBI responsive to our request and that discussions regarding the surreptitious meeting between then-Attorney General Lynch and the husband of the subject of an ongoing FBI criminal investigation reached the highest levels of the FBI. However, on October 21, 2016, the Comey FBI replied to our legal demands that no records were responsive to this request and were located. Uh, this is in direct contravention to the law. End quote. Um, okay, everybody. This is a cover-up. The FBI and the DOJ are, are redacting information that they have about what was tr- what the initial storyline was going to be when it came to the Loretta Lynch Bill Clinton meeting. And let's also just put let, let's revisit this. Let's get back in a little mental time machine here. James Comey cares first and foremost about the greatness of James Comey's career. Full stop. I think that's been clear for quite a while now. Everyone is certain at the time of this meeting. I know some of you listening are like, "Well, I wasn't certain," but y- you know what I'm saying. It was overwhelmingly thought to be the case that Hillary Clinton was going to win the election. Do you really think that anybody was going to not just bring a case against Hillary Clinton in the DOJ, but would be willing to even be a part of 
the investigation that might look really bad for her at the DOJ, unless the DOJ was planning on clearing her all along. Hillary, if she won that election, was going to be Comey and every FBI and Department of Justice official's boss in a matter of months. They all thought she was going to be the boss. That's a lot of pressure. That's a, that's a, a lot of reason to shade the truth. That's a lot of reason to break from protocol and to act in a way that, well, was politicized and was wrong. A, a, viol, a violation of protocol. Perhaps even a violation of the law. Why is the FBI redacting talking points? Talking points, by definition, are meant to be used by people publicly. Why would the FBI be redacting talking points here? So I, I Well, I mean, I can think of reasons, but I can't think of a legitimate one. There was definitely a cover-up about the whole, what the initial reactions were and what the possible justifications were for the Clinton-Lynch-Tarmac meeting. That, that much seems clear to me. So we got a cover-up, but we also have, not that we needed it, but you have further evidence here of just how uh, completely hyper-partisan the major newspapers are. This is from the, uh, the ACLJ piece. Reporters of the Washington Post and the New York Times were apparently less than enthusiastic. I'm sorry, this is in the Washington Examiner. Uh, less than enthusiastic about covering the controversial private meeting between then-Attorney General Loretta Lynch and former President Bill Clinton just months ahead of the 2016 election. The nonprofit American Center for Law and Justice published emails Friday that showed reporters asking Department of Justice officials for details on the meeting. Mark Lander, a reporter for The Times, is seen in one June 30th email reaching out to a DOJ official to say he's, quote, been pressed into service to write about the questions being raised by the meeting, end quote. Matt Zapatosky with The Post emailed the DOJ official the same day after several other emails to say that his editors, quote, are still pretty interested in the story, but that he wanted to, quote, put it to rest. End quote. So, to review, everybody, you have reporters for the two biggest newspapers in the country, or two of the th three or whatever, the New York Times, Washington Post, reporters for those two outlets, both expressing very clearly in their interactions with Department of Justice spokespersons that they... Uh, don't really want to talk about this, don't want to write about this Clinton-Lynch-Tarmac meeting, and that they just want to make this go away as quickly as possible. But they're got, they got to kind of go through the, they got to go through the motions and just sort of make it, see, make it seem like they care. But they don't. Think about that for a moment. You're a reporter. Your, your job is to, well... Whether your job is to tell the truth, or your job is to get clicks and sell advertising is, you know, depends on who you ask, right? But assuming that their job is is one of those to either of the either of those two things, wouldn't a meet a meeting between a former president, a sitting attorney general, while the attorney general is presiding over an investigation of that former president's wife, who, oh, by the way, is actively running for president at the time. And is facing possible federal criminal charges, which would end her campaign and hand the presidency to the Republican candidate, more or less. What, is there such a thing as more newsworthy than that? Think about that for a moment. Is there a story that should get more media? All summer, 
Was there a story that should have gotten more, a one-day story that should have gotten more attention than that? I, I, I don't, I mean, I can't think of one off the top of my head. If you were trying to come up with something to insert in a Hollywood script to get to really, ah, really punch things up, this you, you couldn't write this. I mean, this is better than what Hollywood script doctors would come up with to jazz something up and make it seem a little sexier, a little more interesting. And yet, Washington Post and New York Times are like, ah, I don't really want to talk about this. I just, you know, let's put it to rest. And then they look at us like we're crazy because we don't believe everything they write, because we think they're dishonest, because we think they're lying to us. Well, they are all those things. So why the continued pretense on their part that we'll just come around that eventually we'll understand that they're they're the ones who are doing the real journalism, speaking the truth. You got to look, go to the rightscoop.com, check this out. A great work from the ACLJ. And what does it say that the FBI looks like and DOJ looks like they're complicit, at least some people in them, with trying to cover up what really happened and what the discussion was all about and how it came to be between Hillary Clinton's husband, Bill, and Loretta Lynch, the sitting attorney general. All right, everybody, we've got Dinesh D'Souza on the line. He is a New York Times number one bestselling author and filmmaker. He's got a brand new book out called The Big Lie, Exposing the Nazi Roots of the American Left. Dinesh D'Souza, great to have you, sir. Hey, it's a pleasure. Good to be on the show. All right, tell me about this, Exposing the Nazi Roots of the American Left. I'm assuming there are some liberals who are upset with your title, Dinesh. Well, I hope so, and they'll they would they'll have even more indigestion once they read the book. Uh, but it's good for them to read it because a good deal of the book is secret history that is indisputably true with records to substantiate it, but it's not well known by people. You know, ever since Trump's election, uh, the left has pivoted from the race card to the fascism card. And the basic idea here is that Trump is a fascist, the GOP is the party of the neo-Nazis, and that fascism is a phenomenon of the right. Now, this notion that fascism is a right-wing phenomenon, this, is about, this has been going on for about 75 years, really ever since World War II. And so I take on, I not only refute the notion that Trump is a fascist, but I take on this deeper question of what is the meaning of fascism? What do fascists really believe and today, is it the Republican Party or the Democratic Party that is exhibiting the ideology and the tactics of fascism? Tell me about how Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler admired the Democratic Party. That's that's interesting. Well, interestingly, all of this was covered up after World War II when fascism became stained with the odor of Holocaust. But in the 1930s, if you look at the Nazi newspaper, which was called the Volkischer Biobachter, it was full of praise of the New Deal and FDR. Now, if this seems really odd, it's really not, because fascism is a form of socialism. And the fascists from Germany and Italy looked across the Atlantic and saw the New Deal moving in the direction of greater centralized power, greater federal control, and they loved it. That's what they were doing in their countries. So the Italian uh, newspapers were full of affection for, for, for FDR. Mussolini himself reviewed President Roosevelt's book in an Italian magazine. This was the book called Looking Forward by FDR. Mussolini goes, this book is fantastic. This guy is one of us. He's a fascist. So interestingly, again, now to read this through the prism of history, it seems a little bit strange. But the reason it's not strange is that fascism, socialism, 
uh, progressivism. These are all sister movements on the political left. We're speaking to Dinesh D'Souza, number one New York Times bestselling author. His latest book is The Big Lie, Exposing the Nazi Roots of the American Left. Dinesh, tell me about how Planned Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger inspired racial theories uh, that Nazi Germany latched onto. Uh, Contrary to Planned Parenthood brochures and propaganda, Margaret Sanger, the founder of the organization, was not a champion of, quote, choice. She didn't want women to have choice in deciding whether to have children. She believed firmly that what she considered to be fit people should have more children, and the group she considered to be disposable or unfit people should not be allowed to reproduce at all. So Margaret Sanger actually favored forcibly sterilizing these people. And uh, she was part of a eugenics community in the United States of progressive eugenicists. And these people advocated two things. One is forced sterilization, and the other is euthanasia, actually what they considered mercy killing of people that they thought were useless, uh, the sick, the disabled, the mentally retarded, what they called imbeciles and so on. Now, here's the point. The Nazis got wind of this. The Nazi uh, progressives and the American progressives would meet at these international eugenics conferences, and the Nazis go, we're going to adopt these ideas from the American progressives and put them into force in Germany. So the Nazi sterilization laws of 1933 were based on the American progressive model, and then the Nazis took the ideas of one progressive who had advocated what he called, quote, lethal chambers to euthanize people, to kill them. And the Nazis established a euthanasia program using lethal chambers, i.e. gas chambers, and executing people with carbon monoxide gas. Later, when this was expanded to the, quote, final solution, they used also Zyklon B gas in places like Auschwitz. And so, amazingly, it turns out that, that the Nazis got some of their most destructive and genocidal ideas from American left-wing progressives. In the book, The Big Lie, Dinesh, I know you write about leftist philosophers who have been pushing the all-powerful central state, the the super state, the leviathan uh, that is all-consuming. Who are some of those philosophers, and, and what are the tactics and approaches that they've taken to promote fascism here in America? Well, fascism is very well defined by Mussolini himself. He's the founder of fascism. He created the world's first fascist state. Remember, Mussolini came to power in Italy more than a decade before Hitler came to power in Germany. Hitler revered Mussolini and recognized him as his predecessor. Now, Mussolini says everything is in the state and nothing is outside the state. So from Mussolini's point of view, the state is kind of like a living organism and every individual within it is like a cell. So your only value as an individual is how much you can serve the organism, serve the state. You have no value by yourself. Now, does this sound like the vision of the Republican Party? No. It sounds like the vision of the left, the Democratic Party, the whole idea of collectivism. So if you were to stand up and without attribution read from Mussolini's speeches at a Democratic National Convention, I predict you'd be getting multiple standing ovations. Now, tell me about how the anti-free speech, anti-capitalist, anti-religious liberty 
pro-abortion Democratic Party. I mean, th- this is Dinesh where you're obviously going to get a lot of heat from, which I know is nothing new for you at all. Uh, but I'm I'm sure if you if you weren't going to just have people shouting at whatever college speeches you were planning this year, you might have them now doing the the human chain trying to prevent you from even g- getting into the the venue, or perhaps even worse, hopefully not. But you say that the Democratic Party is the anti-free speech, anti-capitalist, anti-religious liberty, pro-abortion national socialist party in everything but name. Please explain. Now, think about this. You just asked me a question in which you said, you know, Dinesh, if you say these things and you show up on a campus, there are going to be all kinds of people who are likely to show up and block you from speaking. Now, I ask you, doesn't that sound like Mussolini's black shirts or the Nazi brown shirts? When you have these so-called Antifa or anti-fascist guys, they wear masks, they wear black hoods, they carry bike locks and bats as weapons. They threaten people, intimidate them, beat them up, drive them off the campus. What I'm saying is that this is exactly what was going on in Italy in the 20s and in Germany in the 30s. The only difference is that the old fascists were happy to embrace the label, whereas the new fascists march under the banner of anti-fascism. Now, I know that for a while, for, for actually for decades until I think uh, Jonah Goldberg's liberal fascism, people would, would always associate, e- even in political science departments, I remember this at, at Amherst, and Esh, I'm sure it was similar during your time at Dartmouth, uh, you'd have people say, well, communism is the extremism of the left and fascism is the extremism of the right. And I'm just like, in what way? <laughs> how do they, how do they well, come see, up with that? Yeah, see, that's part of the big lie. But you always have to realize, how does a big lie get believed? Now, one reason that this big lie got believed is because, of course, Hitler and the Soviet Union fought on opposite sides of World War II. And so if communism is the extreme left, intuitively, it seems like fascism must be the extreme right. But in fact, that's not so. First of all, remember that Hitler and Stalin, although they fought in the war, were allied at the beginning. Uh, Second, sometimes there are ideologies that are very close to each other that go to war either over fine points of doctrine or over a contest of power. Consider the Shia and the Sunni in the Islamic world. They're both inside the House of Islam. Their beliefs are 99% identical, but they fought these bitter battles against each other. Why? They're competing for, for a fine point of theology and they're competing for for, for for power, for who gets to be the big dog inside of the House of Islam. It seems like somehow also National Socialism and its attachment to fascism is something that people just overlook now when they talk about the history here. Socialism is a part of this whole game. Yeah, Hitler, of course, emphasized National Socialism. Remember, Mussolini was the leading Marxist in Italy. Uh, he was uh, he he and Gramsci were the two main guys in Italian socialism. Mussolini edited the socialist magazine, and when Mussolini came to power, Lenin sent a telegram of congratulations, basically because he recognized Mussolini as a fellow revolutionary on the left. So all of this, you know, needs to be brought out because it not only knocks out the idea that Trump's a fascist, but it knocks out the deeper lie that fascism is a phenomenon of the right. Dinesh D'Souza is a number one New York Times bestselling author. Everyone, you can pick out his latest book, The Big Lie, Exposing the Nazi Roots of the American Left. Sounds like a great read. I'm going to get a copy myself. Dinesh, uh, available on Amazon and fine bookstores, right? Absolutely. Uh, as we're Not to mention Costco and Walmart as well. It's, it's out there everywhere. Fantastic. Dinesh D'Souza, everybody. Dinesh, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. I have to say, it has been... Well, it seemed unlikely, given what's gone on with this White House, that any one person 
would be able to uh, streamline the processes, if you will, to, to create a more uh, efficient day-to-day functioning White House. Now, you see, the president with policy and ideas and communication does his thing, doesn't need any help. That's what that's what he does, right? And he's got policy advisors around him to help with the ideas. But there is a need for structure. And anyone who's run an organization, large or small, understands that protecting your time and efficiently using the time of the decision maker, a person at the very top of the decision-making pyramid, this is essential stuff. It's kind of boring. It kind of sounds like I'm the two Bobs, like meeting with people during office space when they'd say, you know, what would you say you do here? Uh, And, you know, their job was to be they are, quote, consultants, but of course, in that movie Office Space, they were just there to, to fire people. Um, but one of the ways that you get at somebody's usefulness or you start to assess someone's usefulness in an office setting is you ask, well, not only do you have your output, but also what do you do that, uh, or rather, what, what do you do that could be done more quickly? And if it can be done a lot more quickly, perhaps it can be done by somebody else, and then you have someone's position is gone. But in a White House where, based on everything that I've read and based on the reporters that I speak to down in D.C. who are covering the White House, you have a kind of just free-for-all of whoever shows up in the president's office gets to talk to him, and whoever is top of mind at any given moment can just walk in and speak to the president of the United States— when you're running a private corporation, maybe that works for you, and it seems to have worked for Trump in his own business dealings. But there, there is a need. There is a, a place, a role for someone to be not just the gatekeeper, but also the day-to-day process manager, the, the right hand for those who are— uh, I know this is a, another game. This is a Game of Thrones reference. I'll probably bring it up later on in the show, too. I just watched the most recent episode. Anyway, uh, the, the Hand of the King is is one of the titles in the show, which is uh, really the, the right hand, the right hand man. I know it's such a microaggression, but the right hand man and the person who is implementing and handling the stuff that's just below the level of needing a uh, needing a decision from the top guy. And so bringing in General Kelly as chief of staff, which felt like it was there was so much tumult, so much tumult. And it was there's so much back and forth and up and down with everything that's been happening with this White House that to bring in a four star general who not just commands, but also demands respect. And there are some early reporting. I saw this in The Wall Street Journal that there was a little bit of squabbling between a couple of senior Aides and Kelly was just who also, from what I understand, introduces himself just as Kelly to people, General Kelly. Uh, but Kelly told them to leave the room and come back when they figure out what they're squabbling about. So he's not he's not playing games, as the kids say. He's he's not messing around. He's getting right to it. And I do get the sense uh, from Kelly or from the reporting about Kelly. I've never met the guy. I don't know him. Uh, that he, he's taking the only approach he can in the situation, which is he's going to do it his way or Trump's going to have to fire him. That's it. You know, he, he can't be trying to please Trump and the people around Trump. He can only do it the way that he knows how to do it. And hopefully the president sees that this uh, corralling, uh, this gathering together of these different people in the White House for the purposes of more fruitful meetings and discussions and just a a more finely tuned White House machine, it's only possible if the guy who is the maestro, who's the conductor, who's making sure that everyone's hitting the notes at the right time, doesn't have anybody micromanaging him, doesn't have 
anyone who's second-guessing him at every turn. Now, with Trump, I think that's a tall order. I think that's a hard, based on his, uh, his personality and the way he interacts with people, I think there's a general expectation that Donald Trump is just going to be involving himself in these processes, that Donald Trump is going to, uh, his opinions will, one way or another, find their way into everything that's going on in the White House around him that he's aware of. But I think that when you look at someone of Kelly's stature, a four-star general who uh, has no baggage that I'm aware of and has nothing uh, but complimentary uh, news articles about him and and is very well respected from within the military community, was doing a competent job at DHS in the short time that he was running that massive organization, uh, that he's the kind of person that Trump actually might be willing to defer to. And I think this is what we have. Uh, this is what's going on here, that, that Kelly uh, is somebody who you need somebody of that uh, with that sort of gravitas. That's really the best word I can think of for it. That kind of, uh, in the Arab world, they'd call it kind of wasta, which is like clout. Uh, but they need someone with the gravitas of a four-star general like Kelly who doesn't need this job, is doing it to serve the president and serve the country, and is going to do it in, a, in an ethical and, and straightforward and straight-up way and if that means that in a couple of months he's on the president's bad side because he's called out people that need to be called out or he's made decisions that the president himself maybe questions, I think that's where we're going to be. Uh, so despite everything that's happened with the mooch, hey, uh, I heard the mooch wants to start a show now. What's up with the mooch? Maybe we can get the mooch to call into. I'm sure he would actually call, get him to call into the radio show. It'd be kind of fun. Uh, have a child. As I told you, by the way, he is a very, he has this persona of like, hey, Scaramucci, but he's actually a very, he's a sharp guy. Apparently has some judgment concerns, but uh, is, is a smart dude for sure. Uh, so it would be interesting. Maybe we should, we, let's get the mooch. Let's get the mooch. Hey, the mooch. I want to ask if I can actually call him the mooch. Because that was, by the way, that's not a nickname that I gave him. That's what people who know him call him. And his name is one of, there's some Italian names that are just a lot of, a lot of fun to say. Scaramucci is definitely, definitely one of them. Uh, uh, Vince, uh, our friend from the Daily Caller, Vince Colonese. It's really, as I've said before, I think on air, and he kind of laughed at me because so few people actually try to do it in the in the original. But it's Colonese. That's how that's how you would actually say his name. But everyone says Colonese because you know Americanization of things. Uh, but anyway, it's one of those fun Italian names to say. And uh, back to General Kelly, I, I think that this. With all of the things that have happened recently, and it feels like this White House is in disarray, and certainly that's a narrative that the media is just, they're digging in on that because they are not only obsessed with process, but also like to affect processes to get outcomes that they want, right? So they're, they're also invested in creating the perception that this White House is, in fact, in the midst of all this bad stuff going on. And, you know, I think I think there's also at a, at a lesser level or at a, at a subconscious level, the more the White House is in disarray, they also think that maybe they people will start to associate that with, oh, because they're so worried about the Mueller investigation into Russia collusion. And so it, it all ties in, right? It's all part of trying to undermine and trying to harm what the administration uh, is doing. But it may be the case that having Kelly at the helm is the steadying hand that this administration needed in the White House. should also note that uh, McMaster, who's the national security advisor, I'm seeing a lot of 
Very interesting reporting about how he's been removing Trump loyalists. And I even saw a report, I think it was on Daily Wire, it might have been Daily Caller, that he has, that there are reports that he's a bit um, anti-Israel. And so we'll have to see, we'll have to see what the uh, reality is here of whether McMaster is going to stay or go. He is a bit, I'm always, any national security figure uh, who is, revered by the establishment and by the leftist media in particular. It, I'm not saying that means it's bad. It just I just always am like, okay, let me think about this. A little. Let, let's look into this. Because if his opinions are too in line with the foreign policy journalist establishment, then I'd have some concerns. But I think this. I think we've got a steady hand here with Kelly, who's going to be able to do some really good things. We will see. But I'm I, I would bet money that Kelly is not going to back down. And that's what that's what Trump really needs. Somebody who's going to be that guy that gives him the advice he needs and, and doesn't doesn't mess around. And we've got somebody from down in D.C. who knows what's going on in the world of Trump. Madison Jeziato joins us. She's a columnist at The Washington Times, and she is also a former Miss Ohio USA. And so, Madison, you competed in Trump's Miss USA pageant. Yes, I did three years ago in June of 2014. And now Madison is a law school graduate, just finished law school, and she's uh, writing at the Washington Times. We're going to talk to you about all things in politics. Uh, all right, first off, just what are your big thoughts about this week, Madison, when it comes to how the administration did? I thought it was actually, all in all, despite the leaks and the stuff, a really positive week for Trump in terms of policy. Yeah, it's definitely been a crazy week when we look at, you know, staff changes that started at the end of last week and continued into this week. Uh, but when we talk about policy, I think it's been a very good week. And one thing that I don't think we hear enough about is jobs. He's done a great job, uh, you know, from January until now of creating jobs and working to, you know, push that better economy to work for the American people. And I think that's something we just don't hear enough about in the media. What do you think about the speech in West Virginia? Oh, I loved it. I think it was great. It was on message. It was on point. He focused on the things the American people want to hear while still touching on the Russian investigation, which, of course, is something that people can't get away from and making sure that people understood. He's clear. I did not collude with Russia. There's there's nothing's going to come out of this. And let's let's get this over with. And the I, have to say, I think that the immigration debate that was kicked off this week or rather the the focus on immigration now that you've got a couple of senators, Cotton and Purdue, you've got Trump and the administration really Really pushing this, a skills-based immigration policy makes so much sense to anyone who hasn't had the the brainwashing of you know this the the poem on the Statue of Liberty is our immigration policy, which apparently a lot of people have had that by the way. But for the rest of us, it makes so much sense. I think this is the administration's fight to lose in a sense. I, I think that they have a real advantage here. It's on message. It keeps a campaign promise from Trump, and this could really rally the Republican base. Right. And this is something he talked about at uh, the rally last night, specifically speaking about the RAISE Act and talking about, you know, how this bill is going to create a merit based immigration system. It's going to protect workers. It's going to protect taxpayers and it's going to protect our economy, because, as you mentioned, we've had a surge in unskilled immigration for decades. We've had low skilled and unskilled immigration into the United States. And this is depressed wages and harmed American workers and our valuable citizens that are vulnerable and need jobs. I want to ask you, by the way, since you just finished, I know you just finished law school, uh, just graduated. Congrats to Madison from everybody. Graduated, uh, what was it, uh, six months ago or something? Gosh, I can't keep track of the time. Just, but, just not quite, just in May. Just in May. Okay, yeah, so a few months ago. Sorry. So just just recently, a couple months ago. Um, and uh, But I know you've gone through that process very recently. 
from a, a legal perspective and a legal student perspective, I'm curious what you think about the Department of Justice looking into discrimination in college and, yes, law school and other graduate school admissions processes. You know, I think it's important, and the one thing I've always said is I don't care whether we have 10 out of 10 white students, 10 out of 10 black students. I think what we need to focus on is having the best of the best admitted into colleges and law schools and medical schools so that these people are coming out and, you know, really taking leadership roles in, in their professions. And so I think it's something that we've needed to look at for a while, and, and I'm really glad to hear that they're doing that. We're speaking to Madison Josiato. She's a columnist at The Washington Times. You can check out her latest on WashingtonTimes.com. Madison, you tweeted out uh, earlier, the we- earlier in the week, where's the grand jury in the Clinton investigation? Do you, do you really think that uh, that, one, do you think that may happen? Two, do you think it should happen? I think it should happen. We'll only see with time whether it does happen. I hope that it does happen. I'm still very disturbed by the 33,000 deleted emails by the server that was destroyed. And I I don't think it's something we can just let go. I don't think the investigation last year was handled properly. It was a media circus, um, quite like this one honestly is right now. And I think uh, it it should have gone to a grand jury. It was very bizarre to me how it it rolled out last year, especially after that tarmac meeting between Attorney General Lynch and Bill Clinton. And I think we need another long, hard look at that. Now, on the leaks this week, which we've been talking about on the show today quite a bit, because I I think this is setting up a real showdown and and an escalation in the White House's fight, White House's war with, well, the mainstream media, or as Trump calls it, the fake news. But going after leaks is going to run up against some interesting and uh, challenging and perhaps even kind of uh, disconcerting First Amendment issues. What, what are your thoughts on what should be done here? And if there are any bright lines the administration should not cross, what are they? Sure. So we saw Obama go after people with the Espionage Act concerning leaking. And with just the past six months, we've seen more leaks than we saw in the past three years. This is very concerning. It puts people at risk. It puts lives at risk. And it puts our president and his ability to succeed for the American people at risk. I mean, when we see the conversations that were leaked, I, I find it very unlikely that national leaders of other countries are going to want to speak to President Trump you know, honestly and transparently when there's a chance that their conversations could be leaked. I mean, he's the president of the United States. It's very unacceptable. And I think they need to do everything they can under the law when something, you know, is violated. And these leaks do get in the way of his his goals and making America great again, making America safe again. We can't just let this slide just because people don't like him. It's absolutely crazy. Do you think that Jeff Sessions, uh, his job is safe? You think he's good to go for a while now? Have they patched up any any rift with with the Trump with well with the president himself? You know, I've said before, ultimately, it's going to be a decision that President Trump's going to have to make, whether Jeff Sessions stays or whether he goes. But to me, it seems like he's around, at least for a while right now. And I really like what he's doing on the fronts of sanctuary cities and going after MS-13. I think he's really doing what we uh, expected him to do on those fronts. And I hope he continues to push that hard on other issues as well. Tell me about your piece on The Washington Times, where Madison's a columnist, everybody. Uh, Hollywood liberals deliberately denigrate rise of conservative millennials. Sure. So this is something, you know, I experienced at, at Ohio State's law school, and I know so many others have experienced. And there's just there's this stereotype around being a young conservative. And people think that young conservatives don't exist, that conservatives are really only old, unreasonable white men. Right. 
And that's not the case. And we have, you know, a rise of young conservatives. We have more conservatives than we've seen in previous decades. And we see Hollywood and a lot of uh, liberal elites that want to push this idea down the drain. And so I think it's really important to empower young conservatives to stand up for what they believe in and, and speak out about this, because it's very hard to do that in a lot of the settings that they find themselves in. Who are some of the celebrities or the Hollywood liberals, rather, that are going after these conservatives? Well, I mean, look, just look back to the campaign. We saw it with Beyonce and Jay-Z, their support for Hillary Clinton. It's not even about how they support Hillary Clinton. But it's just about some of the things they say. And when we look on campuses specifically, um, a lot of times students just they're really they're put down. They're threatened. They're put in really bad situations by professors. They're put in bad situations by, um, you know, sometimes people that, that do work in government, in their state governments. And it's, it's really unfortunate to see this. I saw this happen in Ohio. I'm sure it happens in, in every state in this country. And what's so great about this country and what made us so great in the past is that we can speak up about what we believe in, regardless of what that is, whether it's our religious beliefs, our political beliefs. And no one, regardless of whether they're conservative or liberal, should be stifled and not able to do this. Madison Jeziato, everybody, check out her latest, WashingtonTimes.com. You can also follow her on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, Madison, always great to have you. Thank you so much for joining us, and come back soon. Of course. Thanks so much. I feel like not that many people in Team Buck are Game of Thrones fans. I don't know why. I just don't really get the sense. Whenever I post a poll or try to have some Game of Thrones discussion going here, people are like, we don't want to hear about Game of Thrones, or I don't know what Game of Thrones is. And for those wondering, producer Amy, who's sitting here right with me in the Freedom Hut, is in fact not a Game of Thrones watcher, has never seen Game of Thrones, which is just mind-boggling to me. Uh, Molly and I watch Game of Thrones together all the time, and I talk about it with my brothers like we're after-the-fact military strategists, like, oh, Queen, Queen Cersei should have done this, but she's bad, we don't like her. Uh, and then there's Daenerys Targaryen. Anyway, you don't like Game of Thrones, I'm not going to talk about that really right now. But it is a Friday and we're freestyling, so I feel like I can talk to you about some random things. Hacking HBO. That's uh, the headline from earlier in the week. And there was a Game of Thrones episode that leaked. And so people thought, oh, gosh, this incredibly expensive series, Game of Thrones, maybe was part of this hacking attempt or this successful hack, this breach. And there were concerns about that. It turns out that the leaked episode, new episode of Game of Thrones that's online now, came from a distribution partner in India, I think, who had access to the new episode, and they've already identified via watermark who the leak is, but that doesn't mean that HBO is in the clear. Uh, it seems that there are, in fact, uh, a lot of, or there, there was a lot of information that was taken from HBO. Uh, I believe it was a t over a terabit, I mean, it was a huge amount of data uh, was reportedly stolen from H HBO. Um, and here's, here's what we know about this. This is from Variety. And by the way, if you're wondering, Buck, why are you talking about an HBO hack? Because I think that this is changing corporate culture. I think that this is now affecting the way that we talk to each other. I think that this is increasingly a reality of every company that we can work for, including our own private business. If you're an independent contractor, if you get targeted by these hackers and they get access to your information, it, it, can, be, it can be deeply damaging to uh, your business. So here's what happened with HBO, according to Variety. The HBO hack may have been worse than the initial leaks of a few unaired TV show episodes. A security company hired by HBO to scrub search results for the hack files from search engines has told Google that the hacker stole thousands of HBO internal company documents. 
uh, disclosure came as part of a DMCA takedown notice sent to Google Tuesday to force the search engine to take down links to the leaked files. The takedown notice also detailed that the hackers did away with masses of copyrighted items, including documents, images, videos, and sound. Many of our... See, this is why this matters. For those of you who are like, Buck, I don't care about HBO. I don't care about Game of Thrones. Although HBO has some really great shows, I'll be honest with you. This is why it matters. We are entering a world where information is more valuable than ever, where uh, labor and physical, tangible assets are being replaced by knowledge, information, digital assets, by what is stored on computers and in uh, on memory sticks and in hard drives and on servers. That is now the greatest currency. That is becoming the most valuable uh, corporate property in existence. I mean, it really is in many ways already. And securing that information is not just a, an essential uh, corporate goal. It also, of course, has major national security implications. Yes, America has tremendous natural resources. We have the American people. We have a phenomenal culture. And there's a whole lot of, um, there's a whole lot of reasons why we're the greatest country in the world. But we also have an information and technology advantage over the rest of the world. I mean, we have company after company that are top of their field, and collectively you put all of them together, and we have the most advanced information economy in the world. And that's why when you look at efforts by China and other countries to steal our information and to steal corporate secrets, it, this is becoming the lifeblood of empire, right? This is becoming the most important uh, deciding factor in the future of the great power game that's going on all the time amongst the various powers of the world. And that companies, any individual company now can be a part of this is, I think, just now a reality of the world that we live in. So HBO's internal documents getting hacked, we don't even know what that means quite yet in terms of how many uh, really uh, damaging bits of information they may release. When you're talking about copyrighted information, uh, there's a lot of financial loss. But the biggest worry, I think, for these companies uh, is what we saw happening when Sony Pictures, you'll remember Sony Pictures was hacked a few years ago. And it was when that movie, the interview came out about it was a comedy, and I have to say, not a very funny one, in my opinion. I know some people really disagree, and, you know, it's, that's fine. But it was a lot of Seth Rogen and whatever's going to be like, hey, we're like, Stone, man, like, we're going to, like, take out Kim Jong-un. And it just wasn't really, it wasn't, wasn't my cup of tea, I can tell you that. Uh, but, anyway, or my cup of coffee, because I'm a coffee drinker. But, you know, the, the Sony uh, files were hacked, and what was most damaging wasn't that there was intellectual property that was pillaged. It wasn't that there uh, was this, uh, you know, just free for all of information that was put out there on the internet. It was what would be really considered, if you were to categorize it, oppo research. It was information on people inside the company who, thinking that they're speaking over private email, said something that was, uh, you know, either insensitive or racist or. Uh, whatever the I forget what the specifics were of the case, but saying things that were um, problematic, politically problematic, and this is now the world that we live in. And I have to say, I think that the company that comes up with a means of 
or a company that comes up with a means of truly secure communication that also is as destructible as the, in the old times when you could get a letter. And if you got that letter and you burn that letter in the fireplace, it was gone forever. We need to get closer to that for some of our communications, because if you're just going to store it on a server, it's like a file cabinet out on the street that's locked, but somebody can get in there and this can bring down entire companies. Uh, it, it can have effects on uh, political races, as we know. I mean, certainly the, the Democrats claim that that's what cost Hillary the election was the hack of an email account. I think that that's nonsense. But you could see how, uh, you know, information online, certainly about someone like Anthony Weiner, that was a career ender. Uh, now, there wasn't a hack there, but he was exposed, um, pardon the expression, for what he was doing online. And I just think that we're going to start to see that information security is now a, a central, a, a central um, mission for a lot of these major companies and corporations because they, if they become vulnerable on that, it can bring the whole, it can bring the whole thing down. It, re it really can. And we all have to now operate in our day-to-day -day as though whatever we're doing is, is subject to uh, publication and public record. It, it's a shame. I mean, the, the Internet has really brought about what I think you'd have to call the, the death of privacy. Uh, there is no such thing as uh, privacy on the Internet anymore because whatever you're doing, there's a trail, it's left there, and somebody somewhere can get access to it. As an aside, by the way, I just had this crazy thought, and this is tied into what we're talking about here. People are saying that Mark Zuckerberg is considering he's hired a pollster, and maybe this is just PR, press nonsense, but he's hired a pollster, and he's considering... Iran for president. Well, isn't that interesting? Because Facebook and anyone who would run against Zuckerberg would have had some interactions online, I'm sure, has ha probably has a Facebook account. Facebook is a private company, and Facebook has more information that it has gathered on people, including up to the individual level, than any other platform, with the exception maybe of Google in history. Think about the Oppo research possibilities. Facebook is under no legal obligation to protect any of the information that it has gathered on people. And think about how if Mark Zuckerberg was running against, you know, John Smith, and it wouldn't be hard for Mark to say, hey, you know, what is John, what profiles has John Smith been looking at the most? Oh, interesting. He, you know, he, uh, his college girlfriend that he, he didn't end up marrying, he spends a lot of time on that profile. Have they been chatting a little bit on the side? I mean, he's married and has three kids. You can start to see how Facebook could be transformed into the most effective oppo research tool in human history uh, if Zuckerberg runs. I'm just putting that out there. I know it's a, it sounds a little bit like a conspiracy or a little crazy, but think about it. It could, it could be real. Uh, so if he were to run, that would be an interesting phenomenon. One thing I always want you to keep in mind is that the true progressive is a, a, a fascinating dichotomy. Uh, the true progressive really has two faces. Uh, they think of themselves as thoughtful, considerate, and kind, but in the pursuit of their progressive ideology, they are in fact vicious and mean and deeply unaffected by the damage that they will do in the pursuit of trying to show themselves and, and the world around them just how uh, 
thoughtful and, and wonderful they are. So we have a perfect example of this with Lena Dunham, who has been foisted on us, foisted on the culture uh, by a combination of the, the, the progressive, uh, anti-traditional uh, left, the anti-excellence, anti-merit left. I mean, they make us uh, look at this grotesque, gross, unappealing, self-indulgent, whiny, dishonest, and, and deeply unkind human being as though she has some worth uh, as a public figure, as though this is someone that young girls should look up to or aspire towards, because she embraces being gross and being uh, unfeminine and being, uh, look, she's just, I, I can't say enough about how I think she's, she's appalling. I mean, her behavior is appalling, the way she carries herself. I don't, like, I don't know her. So this isn't personal, but this is her public persona. So I'm, I'm critiquing a public persona, a public person here. And she is also, as we see from, from what she puts out on Twitter, a uh, really self-righteous and nasty, nasty person. So she was on... Uh, she was on an American Airlines flight, and she tweets out from her official account the following. Not going to call out the airline who delayed because stuff happens. She didn't write stuff, but anyway. Stuff happens, but I did just overhear two American air attendants having a transphobic talk. She tweets out again. At this moment in history... We should be teaching our employees about love and inclusivity, American Air. That was worst part of this night. She then directly contacted. She direct messaged. This, she put this. This is all out there on the Internet, everybody. She was basically bragging about this. She, she thinks that this is just great. She is so pleased with herself. This is what she writes. I heard she, this is on direct message to American Airlines. I heard two female attendants walking, talking about how trans kids are a trend. They'd never accept a trans child, and transness is gross. I think it reflects badly on uninformed employees of your company to have that kind of dialogue going on. What is she, uninformed employees? Uh, she doesn't really understand. I mean, Lena Dunham doesn't really understand English all that well. Um, what if a trans teen was walking behind them? Awareness starts at home, but jobs can set standards of practice. Uh, so then American Airlines says, uh, she, where she goes on into some, oh yeah, and she's being asked what the gate was, and she's being, so, uh, so now you've got the company, an official at the company, looking to find out who these employees might have been to discipline them, maybe fire them. So, to borrow from Kurt, Lo uh, Kurt Loder, former MTV guy who I think is a libertarian, Lena Dunham is the millionaire scourge of working-class flight attendants. You know, here she is calling them out. Remember, this is, she overheard, she eavesdropped on a private conversation. I mean, Lena Dunham is like the, she's like a self-obsessed, hairy-armpitted, self-righteous, sanctimonious, left-wing, pro-abortion version of the Stasi. She really is. You know, she could get somebody fired. For all she knows, these, these women that she overheard having this private conversation that she then uh, blew up their spot, called them out to their boss for this. 
Uh, it's not, first of all, it's not even like Leah Dunham is trans. I should note that this is commonplace in all these discussions about transgender and trans rights. The people who are the most, uh, the, the most full of themselves and the nastiest and the most willing to, uh, to annihilate people, to destroy people, to make an example to others are not trans people. In fact, a lot of the trans people that I have talked to uh, about this issue or just in general are really uh, open-minded and at least willing to engage on it, right? They'll talk to you about it, at least a lot of the ones that I've come across. It is, in fact, the people who think that they stand in defense of transgender rights who will be quick to use the term bigot, will say things, say people are transphobic, I mean, stuff like that. You'll see this all the time. I'll always remember one of my friends who's a great writer, I won't name him because it was a private conversation because I don't blow up private conversations because I'm ethical, uh, but a friend of mine told me that some of the nastiest stuff he ever got in terms of audience response for peace was about transgenderism. And it's just overwhelmingly from people that are clearly not transgender, but who really want to believe that they're part of this new civil rights movement. You know, but not, not a civil rights movement where there's any risk to these individuals, by the way. You know, they just do this from the comfort of their, of their uh, you know, their, their bourgeois, iPad-laden apartment somewhere, you know, luxury apartment in some city somewhere, right? They're not walking across the bridge. They're not facing down uh, dogs and, uh, and water hoses. And, you know, they're, they're just pretend they're posers. They're posing as civil rights heroes, right? Because they're pro-transgender. Anyway, so Lena Dunham is out, out here saying this to American Airlines could possibly get people fired for having a discussion that I have to say is one that I have here with you on the show and is a completely valid discussion. Transgender kids. So now when we have a kid who's 12 years old who thinks that he should have his genitals removed, we're supposed to encourage that? Or no, we, we give him hormone therapy to irreparably damage his, uh, his body. And at 18, he can have sex reassignment therapy. I am incredibly, sim I shouldn't say incredibly, I am deeply sympathetic to any form of mental illness. I am deeply sympathetic to people that need therapy. So it's real. Mental, mental illness issues are real, and they're not for people who are weak, and they're not for people. Back, back to the, the, the transgender kids thing for a second. I mean, to tell me that this is not somehow in, in, in any way um, a mental illness issue or an, an issue of people needing treatment, I think is just getting way beyond certainly where the science is. And but the point is here, it's a discussion that's ongoing in society. Lena Dunham is calling people out. They could have been fired because of this. They could have lost their jobs. And maybe these flight attendants are supporting a sick child at home. Maybe these flight attendants are, maybe one of them was just diagnosed with a really uh, uh, destructive and possibly deadly disease. She has no idea. But think about the mentality. You're just going to go blow up someone's day and maybe their career. Maybe cut off their check that they need to pay their bills because you think they're transphobic. What a sick, evil little maniac. And that's really how people should think of this. That Lena Dunham is a, a deeply unkind, self-righteous, sanctimonious, pain in the butt. And this is unfortunately much more widespread among progressives than certainly progressives seem to understand. They are so quick not just to judge, but to demand action based upon their political judgments. 
based upon what is fashionable right now. They don't want to engage. They are not looking for converts. Progressives are not looking for converts. They are looking to burn heretics. That's the overwhelming impulse that I see with the most vocal uh, progressives across the spectrum, and it is really annoying to me. I mean, it really makes me mad that they would try to get someone fired, uh, you know, that they would try to get someone disciplined, that they would ruin because they, because they don't like what they were saying. What a petty, what a vulgar little totalitarian Lena Dunham and those like her, these smug Brooklynite, oh, look at me, I'm so cool, I watch Vice on HBO and I like to show girls and, you know, I ride oddly shaped bicycles and have lots of ironic tattoos and all this stuff like you know enough is enough let let's get back to what really matters and being decent to people in your day-to-day life and understanding that kindness is our first obligation that everyone carries a heavy burden and it's just a question of whether you know what their burden is or not and taking that as a first approach to people that should be Uh, well beyond, way above politics in how we think of our fellow human beings every day. Everyone's struggling. You can make their life a little easier. You can be a little better. You can make them feel a little better and be helpful or at least be innocuous, you know, at least be neutral. But if possible, you know, it's a good thing to reach out and to be humane and to be kind. We all have that in our power every day. We can be nice to someone. You, you will have that, whether it's online or in person, preferably in person, because I'm always advocating for more human-to-human contact here on this show. Like I say, spend your three hours with me on radio, by all means. But, you know, rest of the day, limit the phone stuff. I do it. I do it. And, I, you know, I've got people telling me, oh, you know, you've got to do this, and you should be posting and writing 10 pieces a day and everything. You know, I put a lot of thought into this show, and I also have a life that I have to lead, just like you do. So... You know, you respect that. I respect that you have the same situation that I do. Anyway, on the on to kindness. Uh, it's just so important, and it matter all this political stuff we talk about. I mean, I care about it, but you know how we all act in our day to day lives is really the single most important thing. Are we kind? Are we ethical? Are we trustworthy? Are we loyal? Are we honorable? And Lena Dunham and the and really the progressive ethos is none of those things. None of them. So I think it's important you keep that in mind. It's not about disagreeing on Obamacare or immigration or anything else. It's much more fundamental between left and right. Can't help but notice that on a day when you have a lot of positive economic information, you know, this stuff often comes out on a Friday. uh, But the day that we get this information coming in um, and we see that the unemployment rate is uh, what, 4.1%, and you had, uh, what, 200,000 jobs in the last jobs report, new jobs. So everything should be great. The stock market, uh, the Dow hit an all-time high. The stock market's doing really, really well. I'm not somebody who knows much about markets. You know, I I thought for a long time that uh, there would be, um, I thought that I would be in in finance, would be the career path I'd go, just because so many of my peers and you know, my dad had worked in finance. My two brothers had worked in finance. Uh, they've moved to, well, one of them has moved to, on to a different field now. But I just thought that's what you, when you grow up in New York City, it's, it's kind of like, you know, West Virginia is a coal town and uh, 
I don't, you know, L.A. is a media town and San Francisco is a tech town and New York is a finance town. I mean, that's really the, the prime. I mean, there's a lot of industries here, obviously. Media is very big here, too. But this is the financial, or at least has been the financial capital world. Anyway, I I'd ended up not going to business school. And because of that, I'm here hanging out with you on radio instead. Who knew, right? Crazy world we live in. Um, I, hope, I hope you all like that decision now in retrospect that I made. So uh, I don't know that much about markets. And I'm unlike a lot of people who go on TV, I pick and choose what I talk about based on one interest, but also two expertise. So when I talk to you about what's going on in Afghanistan and Iraq, I mean, I had an understanding of what's at least at the time what's going on in that country at a very, very high level and at a very granular level as well. Um, and also in terms of counterterrorism and counterterrorism operations, um, I have more background in that than certainly any other radio host that I am aware of, actual background, right, doing that work of counterterrorism, which is a lot of it is analysis, research, and what you'd consider investigative work. In fact, a lot of you who are former law enforcement, if I had described the way that some counterterrorism operations go down, you'd say, well, that sounds like a, a fraud investigation. That sounds like a probably sounds like a counter narcotics operation. In fact, I was really taken uh, by how much in the show, The Wire, the uh, counter narcotics operator, the, the Wire HBO show. It's really a lot of violence and profanity, but it's a great show. And but if you watch it, the counter narcotics operations remind me a lot of counterterrorism operations in terms of just how they set it up. And, you know, it's, uh, these things, there's a lot of crossover anyway. So I don't spend that much time on the economy in a market based sense because there's a there's so many people that they're just sitting in front of screens looking at the way the markets are moving every day. And you know, it's, it's a whole other language that people are speaking sometimes talking about puts and calls and. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't even really do it, right? The same way that I used to be able to speak in acronyms uh, when I was at the CIA, people I know in finance can, they have this, their own, their own language, their own way of, of talking about things and doing things. Uh, but I just bring this up because I know there's a lot of positive economic uh, stuff out there right now. And I don't mean to be the guy who is you know, raining on the parade, but there's just no way that this continues on forever. And I, and I see that Greenspan, this was what made me think of it. Greenspan has said, Alan Greenspan, former uh, finance, finance uh, bigwig, the former Fed chief, he said that the abnormally low interest rates will break a bubble in the bond markets. That may be true. I, I don't know. Um, and I don't give, certainly don't give financial advice here. Um, but I do know that we have not really yet paid the full price for what the government did to pull us out of the Great Recession. I do know that there were things done by the government that have never been done by government before, and I'm just a believer in every action has an equal and opposite reaction, that cause and effect is an ironclad law of the universe, and that this inflating of asset bubbles that's gone on has to give at some point. Now, I know they're trying, and they know that too. I know they're trying to manipulate it and trying to uh, make it happen in such a way that it's not that bad. It's not, you, you don't really feel it that much. I think a lot of this is hidden as well. You know, the costs go up all over the place, but they tell us there's no inflation. Well, technically, maybe that's true, but um, there are. So I, I just know on a, on a basic 
gut instinctual level that this can't continue on. And I also know that I think the unforeseen problem is what will really what will really, uh, you know, come out of nowhere. Well, of course, it'll come out of nowhere. Um, The problem that we're not prepared for, the problem that we don't see is the one that will harm us the most. And I think with this administration, we're all ready for the special counsel in Russia to be what really bedevils Trump and those around him. But something is going to happen in the financial markets. It's just it's inevitable. Uh, whether it's the stock market crashing, you know, correcting 30% in a very rapid period of time, people's 401ks, you know, not evaporating entirely, but getting, you know, getting really hit hard and all the economic impacts of that. Something is coming. I just, we've been so, we've been so prosperous for such a, a good stretch here that I feel, you know, unemployment is so low and, uh, the market's doing so well. Yes, fracking. I mean, there have been some revolutionary technological advances and you know, Silicon Valley and all that. So productivity is way up. And I get that. But I'm just I know going to the weekend, I'm not trying to be the guy that makes things less fun for everybody. But just be careful, everybody, in terms of that there there is a correction coming. There's something that's going to happen soon and it's going to really hit hit our economy hard. And that will have political ramifications and could even have security ramifications. Um, it's This is mostly a gut feeling. I'll give you more specifics as I get them. But just, you know, keep your head up and swiveling, if you know what I mean. You know, keep an eye on that 401k and, you know, be careful where you're putting your money. Uh, all in all, I have to tell you, I think it's been a, a great week for the Trump administration. The immigration uh, raise act that the uh, Trump White House is very much supporting, as well as uh, Cotton and Purdue senators, Republican senators. It is a, a fantastic uh, change, would be a fantastic change in our immigration policy. And it's just rational and reasonable. And the arguments against it are just full of sanctimony and whining and petulance and uh, identity politics and the victimology narratives of the left. And really the bigotry of the left, which we saw with so many prominent pundits who were coming out and saying that they can't have, they they would never be able to abide a point system. A point system is unacceptable to them because that means that there will be a disadvantage for non-whites around the world. It's one of the most uh, dripping uh, dripping with subconscious racism comments I think one could come up with. That on a global scale, we're only letting in a tiny, tiny fraction of the world's population, even under current immigration law. You're going to tell me that if you switch so that instead of taking a million people with 800,000 of them being family family reunification or refugees or whatever, if we took a half a million and four or 400,000 of them or 450,000 of them were skills-based, that we would only be taking in immigrants who were uh, or we wouldn't be taking in a fair number of immigrants who were non-white. It's just, it's actually, it is actually offensive. I mean, I'm not somebody who gets easily offended by things. In fact, I kind of like a good amount of offense. I think it's often important to be forced to check your assumptions and to and to have an understanding of, of what your own limits are for what kind of commentary you will tolerate. Uh, but it, it is a, a an instructive as well as offensive comment when the left suggests that a point system inherently disadvantages non-white 
possible immigrants in the United States. And with that in mind, I also want to just move to the other big issue of the week, which I think is a huge win for the administration. I really hope they pursue it. I hope they continue to fight on this and they force the DOJ or they assign the DOJ, direct the DOJ to really tackle this with everything that they can. And that is the discrimination that exists in colleges and universities and their admissions process. And let's all be very clear about this. I haven't spoken about this earlier in the week. It's also in hiring. We see this all the time. And it's one of the reasons that I think there was such a a deep-seated need for a lot of people for Trumpism because they're suppressed and they can't speak the truth. They cannot say, for example, that there are different qualifications for some jobs for people of different racial or ethnic backgrounds, even though that is official policy. So, for example, a friend of mine, here's a, this is a true story. And, and by the way, this is why the left gets so upset when we talk about college admissions, because of course that's very important for now, college university. We can use those interchangeably very important for the hiring process. Uh, Where you go to school is still a very decent indicator of what some of your at least early job prospects will be. And and at the elite end of the spectrum, it can open a lot of doors. And there's there's a trillion dollars of student loans out there, my friends, because of this basic concept that it's really mostly a credentialing program. Most people don't learn very much in college, and I'm the first to admit that. Most people just go through the motions and try to have as much of a sterling curriculum vitae, resume, whatever you want to call it, as possible. And that's what and the college stamp of approval on people is what they're paying all this money and spending all this time trying to get. But it's very important in the process of getting a job. Right. You get that. It's important where you go to school. You know, if you don't have a degree, you can't get certain jobs. If you have a degree from a known private school, you might have the advantage over somebody who went to, let's say, a state school or community college, although some state schools are fantastic and some community colleges are great. Uh, But uh, actually, it's interesting. If you look back at the history of City College in New York at the early on and the earlier on in the 20th century, it was one of the most elite in terms of the professors they have, one of the more elite uh, places you could go, especially in the sciences. Uh, Anyway. The reality, though, is that colleges and universities are important for the employment picture and who gets to go to Harvard and who gets to get into an elite state school and who gets to go. That all matters. And this is why there's such a fierce fight over it. But also, once you establish that you cannot legally discriminate on the basis of race in college admissions, and for those who say, oh, no, the holistic approach, Buck, and there are no quotas, I say, really? Does that defense work for uh, does that defense work for any public accommodation that, let's say, would be entirely white? Does that actually does that suffice now? Are are you able to do that? You're saying, well, we have a uh, we have a a, you know, a group, let's say, I don't know, whatever it is. We we have some kind of organization that gets federal government funds, by the way, because universities all don't ever forget this, all get federal funds. And if they could not rely on on federally backed student loans, they wouldn't have this huge influx of kids paying, in the case of Harvard, dollars $50, $60,000 a year to go to school. But if you can't discriminate on the basis of race in admissions processes, you also can't discriminate on the basis of race in hiring. You see, the entire diversity state is at stake here. 
the what Scalia called in a Supreme Court decision about voting rights, actually, the racial entitlement state is what Trump and the DOJ are poking right now. And there are a lot of people who are deeply invested in the perpetuation of this racial entitlement state. And we are all sick of it. And let me tell you how this works in the hiring world. For those of you, a lot of you probably have your own stories. And you're like, oh, I could tell you some stories. And uh, trust me, I, I will tell you this. I can't express how many times it has been said to me, always very quietly, always very sort of, you know, well, don't, 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 don't tell anybody I'm telling you this, Buck. But if, if you weren't a white male, I mean, your media career would be taken off. Really? Oh, yeah. No, this is said to me all the time that I'm in the worst, most competitive, least desirable category as a human being in my field because I'm a white male. Now, I know people would say, oh, well, look at Rush and Sean and these massive successes that are out there. And I would say to you, first of all, people who are at that level of success generally have achieved it for a long time. If you look at what's happening now, you'll notice not a lot of uh, of, of young, you know, white males out there getting propelled forward on the right, at least, that are conservatives with their own shows, with their own, because there is a, an unspoken rule in some cases. In other places, it's a spoken rule that you, you want, of course, under the rubric of diversity, everything other than a white male. And all of you sitting at home or wherever you are in your car, wherever you're listening to this show, know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, without me going into too much detail, that if I were a um, non, if I were non-white and uh, quite honestly, female would be helpful too, uh, I would be in a much more competitive position in the media marketplace. This is just a statement of fact, but it's interesting, isn't it? That people get upset. You say this, and there's a oh no no, you can't say that. Well, no, this is just I'm just stating something that is true. And people can try to argue this point, but they always end up sounding silly unless they just go and do that sexist or racist or, you know, they go into the isms, right? The very comfortable ad hominem attacks that are meant to shut down the issue before we can get to any clarity on what is true. And what is true in this country is that the only racial discrimination that exists as a function of law is to the benefit of certain non-white groups, but not all non-white groups. And this is a statement of fact that colleges and universities are discriminating on the basis of race and have been doing it for decades to the detriment of some groups for the benefit of other groups. And on top of all of this, you aren't allowed to talk about it. You're not allowed to speak about it. Okay. In hiring as well, this is in the this is in the workplace. I was just talking about the me, the media market and how it would be better if I were not, you know, white male with you know poofy hair who wears boat shoes and falls into this categorization of of preppy or whatever. I mean, I get that's what some people. This is what people when they hate me on CNN used to say about me, right? So, uh, but you look at the way it works for major corporations, for law firms across the country, and this is everywhere now. You have diversity hiring days. Well, what is that supposed to mean? Here's a perfect example. I had a friend working at a uh, law firm, and he, and he was on the uh, hiring committee. And, and so he knew. And this is the thing. I also I know people who worked on admissions committees. I know people who've worked on hiring committees for incredibly well-known investment banks and law firms. And they sit there. They're the ones in the room when they go, okay, we have an African-American candidate with these grades, these SATs, and this overall 
you know, numeric package in terms of skills and, and grades and all that, right? And here's an, and we have an Asian American applicant for the same job with SATs that are 200 points higher and a GPA that's on a four-point scale, 0.5 higher. And they have to give the job to the African-American applicant. This is not up for debate. I've spoken to countless people where this has happened. In fact, I have been on hiring committees myself in government where these discussions have been had right in front of me. And it's like you're living in some bizarre alternative universe because you're you're not allowed to say anything about it, but you're supposed to do it. So you say, okay, so we're going to take the on paper less qualified applicant because he or she is a better diversity hire, but we can't ever say that. So my friend who was at the law firm, for example, who was part of the hiring process, uh, brought in somebody specifically under a diversity hiring program. Okay, there is a program saying we need more. And diversity in the context of corporate America uh, tends to mean now uh, LBGTQ, black and Hispanic. Uh, Outside of that, you don't really get the, you, you tend not to get the same diversity bump. Uh, you don't get the same benefits in, and this is from, again, I'm speaking from experience. I've seen it. I saw it happening in government. I know from speaking to people in the private sector who are on these committees, this is not up for debate. It's not up for discussion. If anyone ever wants to try to bring the ruckus to me on this, I welcome it because the left is wrong here. They're perpetuating a racial entitlement state and they need to stop. Okay, but my friend, on the hiring committee of this law firm, and look, he was a he was a conservative. I mean, I'll say that the hiring committee of this law firm, and he uh, brings in somebody, and he brings in this person, and says to him, uh, and remember, he'd been hired under a diversity initiative. Says, so glad you're joining, and you know, great, great to be, great to have uh, somebody coming in through the diversity program, which which was what the person was. The person was hired under a diversity program, and somebody who was working. In that program, says, great, to, I'm so glad we're bringing you in. Great to bring you into that program. Do you know that that guy turned around and sued? Turned around and sued, saying that that was discriminatory. That was a discriminatory statement. So you see, but that's a perfect example of what we're talking about here. When someone is forced to act in a way and cannot speak, cannot talk about it, and is supposed to pretend that those, we're supposed to pretend that when it comes to affirmative action and when it comes to diversity hiring, the rules are not the rules. We have to live by them, but we're not allowed to speak about them and we're not allowed to act as though we all know this is the case. And you'll see this now. There, there's a lot of nasty stuff being written. The New Yorker has a piece. In Trump's world, whites are the only disadvantaged class, right? This just came out today. Uh, and what, what, all we have to know about this is that they need the focus to be on whites because we've been so brainwashed in this country with white privilege and the legacy of slavery is a stain on all of us living today. No, actually, the legacy of slavery is a stain on this country and its history, but I didn't do anything. I am not morally culpable for what was done uh, over 100 years before I was born. I I have no moral or ethical responsibility for something that I had no moral or ethical action in. And, you know, this is actually basic. This is Hadley Arkey's uh, Amherst College thesis advisor of mine. This is some of the basics that we would go over, right? What is moral action? What is moral agency? What is the, what is the basis for right action and morality? 
Uh, and if, if you have no ability or obligation to affect a thing, you cannot be held morally responsible for that thing, right? At the simplest, in the simplest terms, you know, if, if the Russians drop a bomb on a Syrian village, I'm not responsible for that. I'm not there. I can't do anything. It's not, you know, you can't hold me responsible for that. Because if you hold people responsible for things that they do not have any agency or connection to, then you can hold someone responsible for anything. And then all morality breaks down. Okay. Anyway, that's an aside. But they're trying to focus it back on this affirmative action debate. And as you can see, I mean, this does fire me up because I've just seen it playing out over and over again. It's in the, in the media world, it's, it's all over the place. D- diversity is our strength, diversity hiring. It's, and and it, was the tr- it was the case in government, too. We had special diversity hiring initiatives. You know, you, you go look and see how they're trying to hire for different federal government agencies. Oh, diversity this. They've got offices of diversity, diversity that. Okay, well, why would we need an office of diversity if we're not going to adjust the standards? We are adjusting the standards for some groups, not for Asian Americans, though. That's the problem. They want to focus on whites, but Asian Americans make their whole argument disintegrate. And that's why they get so agitated over it. They want to focus on whites because of white privilege, all the things that I've said to you. But they wouldn't need they wouldn't need uh, these offices of diversity and inclusion and these things they've all set up in the government if they were not adjusting standards, which they clearly are, but that you can't say they're adjusting standards, that you can't be honest about what's going on is indicative of what's really happening here, which is you are being silenced because what they're doing is unethical. It makes them feel good and it makes them feel sanctimonious and, you know, the people that implement these policies, but it really disadvantages everyone in the long run because it destroys whatever system of merit we could have in place. It undermines the achievements of those in places where there are, of those who are minorities who are in places where there's diversity hiring and diversity initiatives, no matter how worthy, no matter how brilliant and fantastic they are. And I've been exposed in my time in school and in the professional, uh, in the workplace, in the professional realm, to minorities who were the absolute top. And it was unfair to them that there were other people who had been admitted without being even qualified, and then there are questions about, well, who's here for the right, the right reasons? Who's here because of merit and who's here because of politics? And that's what this is really all about. Um, I was going to get into how Harvard is more than half minority uh, with the incoming class. Harvard is more than half minority, but we're still being told about white privilege all the time, and we're still being told that affirmative action is necessary even though it is blatantly racial discrimination. And it needs to stop. The best way to stop discriminating by race is to stop discriminating by race. Very straightforward. Uh, That's going to be the show for uh, this week. Uh, I do ask you, as I always do, and I I really do think of it as a favor. And for those who uh, who appreciate the kind of show we do here, uh, which involves a lot of of thought and research and is honest and is trying to bring you the truth and, and information that you won't get other places or information that just enriches your day-to-day understanding of any number of things, just share the show with one person. Get one person that you know in your life to start downloading to become a part of Team Buck. They can go on iTunes. It's just Buck Sexton with America Now. It would be honestly an honor, and I would greatly appreciate it. So those of you listening, whether you're download or live listeners, please do uh, share it with a friend. BuckSexton.com slash store. We've got clothing and other fun stuff up there. Uh, Have a fantastic weekend, my friends. Take a little break off from politics on Saturday and Sunday. What do you say? 
Until Monday, when we dive into it again, as always, shields high.